0: Today in the garage we have Marco Shara for a repeat performance. Marco is a defense lawyer with a particular interest in defending serious violent offenses such as homicide. Today we talked about sentencing and the path he travels when approaching a sentencing hearing. Whether you're driving your Cinquecento or you're jamming with your friends. Or you're preparing for an in-camera hearing. Let's step into the garage, listen to the experts, and get a tune-up. Hi, Marco. Welcome to the garage. Thanks, Paul. Good to be here. Okay, Today, what we're going to try to discuss is the concept of sentencing and Drawing your experience for our audience uh, to understand, you know, when you're facing your first sentencing or if you want to help uh, your client to the best of your ability, what you really need to do to ensure that uh, you uh, cover off what you need to cover off in sentencing. So, I know everyone knows what sentencing is, uh, but why is it an important part of the process? Well, Paul you know, I don't want to sound like uh, I'm not here to win for my clients
1: because I'm always here to win every case and get my clients acquitted. But the reality is, you know, a large percentage of cases in our system go to sentencing. Um, the the 2019 uh, Ministry of the Attorney General Statistics indicate that 96% of cases uh, get disposed of by one method or another. And a large portion of that amount of cases is our uh, complete sensing hearings. So for me, sensing is a very important part of the process. What I do is I basically start off right when I first meet the client. Okay. So when I meet the client, I don't indicate to the client or, oh, you know, let's talk about sensing. Cause that's going to, the client off, but I want to gather as much information as I can about the client. I want to know what their circumstances are, what their personal circumstances are. If they have mental health issues, addiction issues, um, life circumstances, if they are employed, the type of job, if they're a citizen of Canada, all of these are relevant factors to consider, uh, at the sentencing stage of the process. So I try to get that information as early on as I can in my retainer with the client, because I'm keeping that in mind because inevitably a very early conversation is going to be from the client asking, you know, how bad is this? What are the consequences? How bad could this be? And if I know a lot about the client, for instance, if he's a first offender she's a first offender with no criminal history and has all these wonderful uh, things about them in, in the community, I can provide them with, at least a general range of what I think, you know, the worst case scenario could be for them in the circumstances, if convicted of this offense. So I try to gather as much information as I can right out of the gate.
0: How important is it to give them realistic expectations and let them know transparently where they stand in the system?
1: I, I like to, my I the way I treat my clients is that I like, I'm a very realistic, uh, I give them realistic uh, options. I tell them what the real... Likelihoods are going to be as best as I can. I, I'm not a sugar coder to my clients, and I tell them that right out of the gate. So I try to give them a realistic expectation of what the worst case scenario is if if this case doesn't go through. The other thing I try to do is walk them through the process. I um, the initial my initial retainer meeting always takes them through the process of what they can expect in the justice system. Uh, and I explained to them how the topic of resolving cases comes up at every step in the process so Crown pre-trial From the charge screening form to Crown pre-trial to the judicial pre-trial So the more information I have about my client The better the circumstances are going to be when I'm negotiating with the Crown attorney or when I'm discussing with the Crown attorney To see whether or not the matter can be resolved It doesn't necessarily have to get to the sentencing hearing But if I know that I can resolve the matter by way of a diversion or a peace bond or something that the client might be uh, willing to accept. I wanna know that early on. So the idea of sentencing and and the information that we need for sentencing, I like to get that information as early on uh, in the process as I possibly can.
0: Okay. Um, How are you guided through the sentencing process and what are the key issues that you focus upon? Well,
1: obviously, as lawyers, we have to be familiar with Section 718 of the Criminal Code. Section 718 tells us about all the principles of sentencing that are relevant to us: uh, denunciation, you know, making sure uh, the punishment reflects society's abhorrence for crime, uh, deterrence, both specific deterrence so that the individual will not do this commit this offense again, and also general deterrence so that the population at large can. Look at the sentence and realize that uh, they'll be deterred from committing similar acts Um, we also focus on rehabilitative prospects of the offender and that's important when you get to know the client to see whether or not is this just a bad mistake by this person in a one-off situation or is this the type of situation that's reoccurring and if it's a reoccurring situation then you might have to dig a little deeper into the background of the of the client to understand what's motivating their criminality because We want to be able to present to the court and to the judge at some point in time that, you know, this person has these underlying issues which are antisocial or spawn antisocial behavior, and they're addressing those underlying issues. And if we can demonstrate some rehabilitative prospect for the client, that's going to go a long way on sentencing. So I always keep that in mind. If it's a serious violent offense, the protection of the public is always a, a a concern at the forefront. We also need to concern ourselves with the offender taking responsibility for their actions, that's a consideration. If there's any losses to the general public, whether reparations can be made, that's another consideration. And obviously everything, all sentences have to be proportion, proportional to the offense that has been committed. So we wanna look at um, what is the appropriate range of sentence for this particular offense, for this particular offender. It's a very, very personal, and unique uh, process in the justice system and it has to take the shape of, of a manipulation of the facts and the, well not manipulation, but focus of the facts and the individual's uh, personal concerns and considerations to develop the right sentence. The judges have to concern themselves with all of that to develop the right sentence for that individual in so, the circumstances. So I wanna draw
0: you back to your interview process. Uh, the individ- individualization of the uh, accused person is so important. How do you dig deep into who they are, so that when you're before the court, you can explain their full history? What are the things that you try to typically look for or well, look at?
1: I, you know, I I have a lot of experience dealing with addiction issues and mental health issues, and so I ask very. Um, open questions, but questions that try to demonstrate, A, I want to get to know my clients. Because when you're making sensing submissions, it's very apparent if you know the person that you're speaking of. The retainer is going to last several months, likely. And so you have an opportunity to get to know this person. And you start asking questions about their family, upbringing, their history. You know, if you ask somebody, well, you know, do you have addiction issues? The answer is gonna may, might be no, no, I don't have any addictions. But as you get to know the person, you realize that they like to, you know, drink regularly or every time they drink, they get into fights, or you get, you know, then you start realizing that, hey, you know what, there's something there. And then as you build that trust with your client, you can start saying, Look, I noticed that your entire criminal record is bar fights. You know, maybe when you drink, do you get into fights when you drink? Yeah. Maybe we can like focus on that and then we can say to the judge, look, this person's recognized that their violence comes up when they drink. And so they're doing their best to address their drinking issues. And I have those discussions with my clients early on because I say to the client, look, not only is this going to be beneficial for your case, but it's also going to be beneficial for you if you can, you know, steer yourself away from antisocial behavior by addressing the underlying concerns. Like, And I tell them I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not an addict uh, addiction counselor but i have those people that i refer them to and if they're interested in taking those steps it's usually very helpful because then they start addressing their issues and it, it presents very well especially if we get to the ultimate uh, sensing here
0: and i know you were talking before about the different principles we find in section 718 and following of the criminal code um how do how do you put them all together it's it's one thing Uh, for us to understand the law, but it's also fitting the facts into the law for your particular submission. So what do you look for and how do you weave it uh, between each of the different concepts? What's, what's some highlights you can help uh, young lawyers with?
1: Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Obviously it's case specific. um, But in cases where, for instance, if it's a first time offender, it's a lot easier because you can get into discussing the impact of being involved in justice system itself as a specific deterrent so you could say you know this person has never been arrested before they've gone through the process of being handcuffed arrest, arrested going through the court system etc and that is something that they're never going to want to go through again or experience again and that would be you know specific deterrence i think that same with the rehabilitative processes and you can say to the court This is what they've done while having after having committed this offense, but before the sensing to address what motivated that specific offense and if we can address what motivated that specific offense and we we can demonstrate the steps have been taken to address that issue then that goes towards rehabilitation. So you can weave that in and you can say, look, if this person has is has specific deterrence and is not going to commit an offense again and is rehabilitating themselves, they're not going to be a, a, a danger to the public anymore because they've taken the right steps. So you weave your sense your your submissions together because they all relate to this person that's before the court and what steps that they've taken. And if they have taken those steps, then you know, for instance if, if it's a theft, like I, rep, I acted for uh, a young man who stole from his employer. He worked at Loblaws and he stole from his employer. And, you know, we had to take those steps. We had to understand why he was stealing. Well, he was, you know, he had no parents. He was hard up and he was taking to survive. So he was stealing items like toilet paper and other stuff. So it's mitigating there and, you know, he had to. He had a little bit of an addiction issue, and so he had to address those issues and so on. And you build that, and you, you personalize it. So when you present to the judge, you're not saying, you know, it's not Mr. X. It's, you know, Mr. Smith, my client, who I've gotten to know over the course of several months. These have been his issues, and he's addressed those issues, and he's identified them and taken positive steps. So that's how I weave it together, if I can.
0: The Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court have told us that uh, the sentencing judge has the greatest or they give the greatest deference to the sentencing judge. They're in a very unique position. Knowing that they're in the unique position, how do you proceed to ensure that you advocate um, for your client and, and stretch the limits to ensure that they're within the bounds but you're pushing for the best resolution for your client? Well, I like, I like to support my
1: sentencing submissions with whatever documentation I possibly can. Um, if, if my client doesn't have the means, then we have to take, you have to use the means that are available to us through the courts. You might have to, you might have to go through a pre-sentence report and take those steps where a judge orders a pre-sentence report and, and a probation officer interviews the family and friends and basically takes those steps to, um, get to know your client. I, I'm not a huge fan of the pre-sentence report. If, if the judge does order it, I tend to advise my client, you know, what to be prepared for, what to look out for because I, I don't think that probation officers are necessarily always unbiased when providing these reports. And I'm concerned that they might put a slant on it that might be detrimental to the client. If I can provide the documentation myself and do the work myself, i m- much rather take those steps and I advise the client as to why I want to take those steps. And what that involves is, I, I request that the client provide me with letters, um, if, if for instance, if the client says that they're working, I don't just take them at their word. I'd like a letter from an employer. Then I'll follow up with that letter. Um, same if they've completed any rehabilita- uh, rehabilitative process, if they've gone to see a counseling or anger management. I want letters. They don't necessarily have to breach the privacy of what was discussed, but at the very least indicate that they've come this a number of sessions and generally these were the topics that were discussed and the advice that was given in terms of, you know, if it's anger management, in terms of coping with, um, you know, anger issues and other skills that they've learned throughout and whether they've been receptive to those skills. I always like to provide, uh, if there are support letters from family and friends, I want those support letters always to indicate that the person who's writing the letter is aware of the offense that he the person's been convicted of, is aware of the individual and provide an honest opinion of what they think uh, the prospects of rehabilitation are. And then what I typically do is I follow up with these individuals. I call them, I ask them questions and I put everybody on notice that um, I'm going to be providing all the stuff that they've given me to the crown attorney and that the crown attorney may decide to follow up themselves and call. And you know, just to be honest and explain everything that they've explained, because the last thing I want to be seen to do is to be advocating Uh, on the basis of false or misleading information. Because that's not gonna be helpful to the client. And obviously the court is gonna look very negatively upon me for doing that. So I do my due diligence. And when you put that together, it gives you an opportunity to then research the case law and find perhaps cases that are similar it sets things very individualized. So it's very difficult to find a case that's on point. You might find a case where the offense is similar, but the accused is different. Or you find a case where the, the circumstance of the accused might line up, but the offense is much different. So it's hard to argue and you have to argue them by analogy, but you're gonna, going to ask for the best possible outcome that you think you can get for your client. And if that outcome is available to you and supported by the case law, and by the materials that you've provided, then you advocate for it and you're not going outside the the scope of the law when you're doing
0: that. So uh, it's interesting you bring up that ethical question uh, because when you get letters, you have an absolute duty to ensure that they're authentic. We cannot create any falsehood upon the courts. and. I've seen in, in in my years of practice where people have not purposely done it but have dropped the ball and not made those calls that you talk about, and it's so important for them to do. Um, have you ever received a letter where somebody says, you know, I, I know Mr. Smith, and I really think Mr. Smith is innocent. Um, and, and if you do get those letters uh, or, or, or talk to the reference, uh, the individuals providing the reference, what do you tell them to avoid that sort of... Uh, judgmental uh 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 letter that uh, really isn't helpful in court well i mean i will tell them
1: that that you know mr smith the client has uh respect for the law the law has found them guilty of the offense and that despite their opinion that he's a, her or she is innocent um they've been found guilty and the court is not looking for unless you're a witness and you were there and you know definitively that they're innocent, your opinion on this person's guilt or innocence, and that's not going to be helpful to my job as a, as a lawyer in terms of sensing. So either I won't use or rely upon that letter, or I'll send that letter back to the individual and say, look, they've been found guilty. So for the purpose of any character letter that you're providing, you're going to have to accept the fact that our justice system and the test that we've put this person through has determined uh, the guilt or innocence of this individual. And if you don't accept that, then I can't rely on your letter uh, going forward.
0: So let's talk about some of the tools that are available for you when you assist your clients in the sentencing process.
1: The first thing, obviously, the first thing I look at is what we discussed already is uh, Section 718, the criminal code. You have to know the the criminal code. When I was a young lawyer, a judge said to me, I was making submissions on a Quick guilty plea. You know, when you're young, you don't. Somebody's in bail court, and the crown says, "Look, I'll give you your guy if he pleads today. I'll give you time served. Uh, you know, was a small amount of marijuana." So the client's like, "Yeah, I just want to get out, get into plea court." The judge was very offended at the fact that I traversed this matter from bail court to plea court. He said, like, "What kind of lawyer?" And he made a comment like that. He's like, "I'm not even going to hear this until after lunch because some some quick." court guilty plea that's going to come from, to me, i gonna not going to hear this. So he took a long lunch and I made me wait and I get back to court two o'clock and I'm the only matter on the docket and the judge just put me through the ringer. What's 718 of the criminal code? What are the principles of sensing? What, where do they apply here? Why should I give this person time served? Why that? And, and it was just, it was a nightmare, but it was a lesson learned because I said to myself, you know I, you're embarrassed and you're you're made to feel like like you're inadequate as a lawyer the client didn't care because the client got time served he walked out he thought i was a genius but <laughs> i didn't feel i didn't feel good about it so after that point i'm said you know what i have that taught me a lesson and what that taught me is look i had sensing submissions the next time i had to do a sensing i wrote it out i did it in writing for myself for the judge for the court and then i always had that template And I know what the principles of sensing are so that I can always refer to that if I have to in court on my feet, because sometimes you forget. Sometimes it doesn't matter how long you've been doing this, you forget. And so criminal code is the first thing. Obviously, legal databases are important. Um, As I said, the case law is not necessarily on point, but you have to know your audience too. For instance, if you have uh, Justice Nakatsuru, you you can advance a, a... an argument that, you know, uh, uh, an accused of a racialized background has to be—that's something that can be considered at sentencing and the effect of growing up uh, under dis- the discriminatory uh, conduct of the Canadian society from a racialized background. But if you're in front of another judge, uh, I forget—it was Justice uh, Lemay disagreed with Justice who said no racialized background is not like indigenous you can't stretch it that far and declined to offer that so knowing your judges knowing your judges knowing your who your audience is and looking up their sentencing uh cases are important because you can get a general feel of what they believe so right now is a good time to to really look into I think um sentencing cases where for instance that case of Jackson by Justice Nakatsuru, where he does an extensive analysis of of what it means to being you know being a racialized Canadian and the impact that that could have on their uh, understanding in the justice system and whether or not that that's worth some consideration at a sensing hearing
0: yeah and just uh, I, I just want to drop the site for that it's 2018 onSC 2527. And uh, I know the case that you're talking about with Justice LeMay, it was Regina and Brissette. That's right. And, and
1: you know, it's it's unfortunate that not everybody's on the same page with this and perhaps the Court of Appeal will have an opportunity to decide this or the Supreme Court of Canada. But... Knowing your audience is important, and I think that's what the relevance of the case law research does, is that if you, if you, at the very least, can research your judge and get a feel or a flavor for their sentencing habits, you may find a case that's similar, a case that's on point, and you may see what is the type of receptive argument or an argument that may be receptive to them.
0: Any other tools
1: you use? I use legal texts. Um, I know that Iman uh, Publishing has a good text on sensing. I think uh I know Danielle Robitaille is on it is one of the authors of that text. That's that's very helpful. Again, it's diff it, it helps colors the principles of sensing and provide you with some strong language in terms of the submissions that you make. I use uh pre-sense reports when they're when they are uh ordered to the best that I can, but I, I'm very meticulous with them, I go through them and I ask the judge not to consider anything that I find that's detrimental to the client or biased slanting against the client that's just the opinion of the writer. A lot of times the probation officer will write their opinion mixed into the text and it's not fact. And to the extent that I will have that clarified, uh, I ask the judge to not consider it and if, if the Crown disputes that, I've had the probation officer have to testify at the hearing uh, to clarify various points you never really want to get to that point. Usually the crowns don't push to that limit, but sometimes they do, um, mental health assessments. If you need them, if your client suffers from mental health issues, you need a mental health assessment. I've used that at sensing hearing. And as well, um, if they've done any type of counseling or, or addiction counseling, I'm very surprised sometimes at how, um, courts, some courts and, and, some of the more experienced judges do not really appreciate the relationship between addiction and mental health and a lot of people a lot of times you're in front of a judge and you can maybe you can tell that they're not really appreciating that addiction has driven a person in a way that is more of a mental health issue not because they want to get high to go party or to enjoy that high it's they're so wrapped up in their addiction that they're willing to get involved in criminality in order to satisfy that addiction, that craving, that's how far they've gone. And so that's not that now is very common to understand that there's a relationship between that. But sometimes you're sitting there and you're thinking, how, how am I still having to explain that in 2020? You know, I've been a lawyer 14 years and, or 13 years. And, and uh, I felt like it was already common knowledge since then. You know, another thing I do, and a lot of people don't necessarily subscribe to this, but I read, I've read the, the Alcoholics Anonymous big book, which is the template 12-step uh, book for Alcoholics Anonymous. And I read that because it helps you get an understanding of, of what addiction does to your clients. And it also allows you to identify sometimes that your clients might have some addiction issues that they might not be aware of. And it, uh, it colors the way they interpret their behavior.
0: Have you had any experience with using GLADU reports? Uh,
1: yes, uh, when I when I first started, uh, I was working at a firm where we had a lot of uh, clients of Indigenous background, and uh, I was often in GLADU court. Gladue reports were were helpful. I found in in sensing cases for those individuals, and you know I'm also aware now with the sensing and parole project, you can get an enhanced uh, pre-sense reports that are private for people of black and marginalized communities so that they can assist with providing a, a more of a background to the judges you can ask the court to order them to the judges to provide some understanding of what their uh, life experience as being part of these groups has how, how it has impacted them and, and I'm sorry, and sorry to interrupt but sorry. I, I really
0: appreciate you bringing it up because um we've We've we're we're doing a garage series on this. In the past, we've had speeches regarding the need for enhanced uh, uh, pre-sentence reports, and it's a it, it it's a project uh, that is funded by the Law Foundation of Ontario. And I hope that it, it becomes commonplace and people recognize uh, that it's out there as a tool for you to use. Um, I know we've been talking about the tools you use in our sentencing. I want to get a little more personalized and 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 ask about like real difficult situations that have presented themselves to you during the sentencing process. Uh, like you hear about these war stories where somebody's tapping you on the shoulder and it's a client and they're saying no, 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 no. and they're prepared to admit everything to go home. I, <laughs> you make me laugh when you when
1: you say that because it often makes me cringe thinking of of when i see lawyers in plea court who are just not prepared it just bothers that is one of my biggest pet peeves they don't know their client's date of birth they don't know their client's address they don't they and and every question the judge says well how old's your client and they look over their shoulder how old are you he's 35 Your Honor." and th- that i mean to me that's embarrassing it's embarrassing as a defense lawyer to watch one of my colleagues be uh, unprepared doing a guilty plea or doing a sensing hearing for a person the most important thing that doesn't happen to me because i prepare my clients for sentencing i tell them here's what's going to happen i do the pre-sentence i don't stand up in front of a judge and say oh your honor I did the 606 uh, inquiry i don't do any of that i stand out in front of the judge and i review all of the points of the inquiry, uh, plea comprehension, inquiry with the client on the record, I ask him every question. And then I tell the client, some judges will do it as well. And they will reverse the questions. They'll change the questions around. They'll make it, you know, more personal, be ready so that you understand, because I don't want a client to be, oh, he never told me, he told me I was getting uh, 30 days. You know, not that the judge has the ultimate say in the sense, I always want that to happen. So in terms of that behavior, when I see it happening in court, it just, it bothers me a lot because this is just a simple uh, matter of preparation. And just because this is a sentencing or maybe a guilty plea, you would still, it's still a trial. It's a trial where your client has elected to plead guilty as opposed to not guilty. So you should prepare for it in the same fashion that you would prepare for a trial, give your client, walk them through the process. When you have an opportunity, explain to them how it's going to go. And I always say to them before they get arraigned, the answer is, and then if it's not guilty, I tell them the answer is not guilty. and The answer is guilty. I tell them that. So my clients are prepared and I refresh their memory in the moment. So, that sort of stuff doesn't happen where I run into, where I've run into issues on sensing hearings, where they get a little complicated is where you really have a difficult time after a trial where your client has pleaded, not guilty, got convicted, um, to then have to stand up and, and fight for an appropriate punishment in a circumstance where your client, um, may not, hasn't accepted responsibility for his actions. It's it's a lot more difficult to conduct the sensing hearing uh, in those circumstances than on a guilty plea. In, in a recent case I did, I had a, a client who, you know, he has one entry on his record and it's for 10 counts of armed robbery of convenience stores. And he was found guilty. I mean, he pled guilty to that. And after he was released, he got arrested for another string of robberies of convenience stores. And, you know, we had a trial and he was convicted. And the judge ordered a pre-sense report. And I had a bunch of letters. And the pre-sense report was fantastic. The pre-sense report was of an individual who had a full-time job. He was a manager. He had a side job. He had family and friends in the community. Father of three. Educated. Continued his education after coming out of the penitentiary. Um, and, and when I say he had a full-time job, he had a, a well-paying job. Uh, there's really no explanation for any of his reasons for being involved in these string of robberies with a co-accused. And I knew that the inevitable question would be from the court, what what motivated this? Well, what can we take from this? If all of these people are... Despite his criminal history of committing these offenses when he was 18 years old and then getting out and within a week of his warrant expiry, getting involved in another string, the judge is going to ask me, well, what what can we say of this? Is your client basically a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? Does he present one way to the rest of the world, but then deep down he has these criminal instincts? And I knew that question was going to come and, and I didn't have an answer to that. And it's not the type of question that I'm going to ask my client because I know my client um, was intending on appealing. So it's very difficult as a lawyer then to make those submissions and say, you know, why why we can look at and what, what motivated this criminality. So sometimes you have to be mindful of the evidence that came out. The evidence that came out in the trial was that there was evidence that his co-accused was um, in a dire situation, that his co-accused needed some help. His co-accused was in a financial financially difficult spot. He'd recently lost a child and, you know, he asked my client for help. Um, you know, the co-accused had a criminal background as well. And the assistance that my client provided um, was not inconsistent with what all his support letters said. He's there for his friends. One letter said, uh, you know, he drove an hour to pick her, pick her up after, uh, her car broke down. Another person said that whenever she needed coverage at work or he needed coverage at work, he would be there to cover them at work. So he's the type of person who's going to be there. Who's going to help his friends. That evidence came out. And I said to the judge, you know, there's enough evidence here that you can infer that, you know, He's motivated to help by helping his friends, and he's motivated by the type of crimes that he knows how to do. If he was a drug dealer, this might be a drug case. If he was, you know, he's he's a he's a person who has experience robbing convenience stores, so that's what he knows how to do. Um, yeah, it wasn't the best submission I ever made in my career, but it it nullified or at the very least, neutralized the idea that the crown tried to put forward without any evidence that he uh, you know, gets thrills out of Robbing convenience stores. He's not a thrill seeker, so it neutralized that, and and to the extent that it neutralized that, it had a benefit of getting that sentence in the range at the low end of the range, which is what we were asking for, as opposed to at the high end of the range, which is what the crown was asking for. It provided a, at the very least some explanation because I had the overwhelming evidence that this person has rehabilitative prospects, and that even though he's a recidivist, there is an underlying some possibly an underlying explanation to his criminality. And so, you know, to the extent that the judge could not look away from it, it was helpful, but that was probably the most difficult sensing hearing I've had to do. And it's a client who, you know, I really get along with and he's a, you know, I know the family and you're actually surprised, um, that, that he gets him, got himself involved in these things when you get to know this person.
0: So in protecting the record, um, you had to ensure that your advocacy was at its key to ensure that you deliver what you have to uh, provide to the court f- so that they have uh, a- enough information uh, to uh, deal with sentencing, but at the same time to ensure that nothing negative would uh, affect the, uh, the uh, potential appeal. Yeah, when you know that your client is appealing, I mean, it's easy
1: when it's a first-degree murder. See, first-degree murder sentencings are the easiest, so I just state my client's name, his date of birth, and his Canadian whether his citizenship status, and then I sit down, you know? And it, sometimes judges have taken that um, the wrong way, but my client's going to appeal. He's been convicted of the most heinous offense in the criminal code. I'm not going to stand up and try to redeem him in any way at this point, or her in any way at this point. And my client is looking ahead to his appeal or her appeal. And so this is all I'm going to say. And we know what the sentence is going to be. So to me, in those circumstances, there's no reason to say anything more than that. Uh, But not all of them are like that. So when they're not like that, you have to try to find some redeeming qualities. But being mindful of the fact that there will be an appeal, there will be a record at the court of appeal and use the use the information that you have available to you that's already in the court record.
0: Share some of your thoughts on how important advocacy and ethics are in the sentencing process. It's, it's extremely important. Obviously ethics are always
1: important. I, 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 as I said earlier, I don't, um, I don't take my client's word, uh, when they provide me information. If I can, I, I, I do my best to verify as much as I can. Sometimes, you know if your client's in custody and it's a guilty plea out of jpt you know the crown offers a good deal and you have to you want to do the plea that day or in short order your client's going to give you information that you may or may not be able to confirm and if you cannot confirm that information i think it's important that you say to the judge my client has advised me this so that that alerts the judge to the fact that it's information coming from your client It's not information that you've been able to confirm, but this is the information. And the judge can put whatever weight they see fit on it. You don't want to make representations that things are 100% uh, accurate coming out of your client's mouth without any confirmation. Oftentimes, uh, I've had the opportunity to call. Like my client says, well, no, when I get out of here, I'm going to go work for Lenny's Landscaping. Oh, you have the number? Gives me the number. I call them. Is this true? Yeah, that's true. Then I can say to the judge, I've actually phoned them, Your Honor, and uh, they are available and they are willing to take them back. So, And, you know, judges in, in provincial court in matters that are happening a little more quickly, they understand that if a person's looking to get out today, we're not going to hold them up so that the lawyer can go to their, get a letter from this employment place. The judges will accept that. But in, as a matter of course, I like to get my instructions in writing. I write out the, the, the plea comprehension inquiry, the plea instructions, and I also like to give any client 72 hours minimum to consider the guilty plea. Um, I like to advise them of any um, potential issues that might arise out of a conviction, for instance, immigration issues or employment issues, um, family court issues, if I'm aware of them and I give, and I advise them to seek independent legal advice uh, from lawyers who practice in those areas. I think those are all part of our ethics here as, as lawyers to make sure that our clients are fully informed of the consequences of being found guilty of a criminal offense. And that goes all the way back to the time when they decide whether to have a trial or whether to have, or whether to plead guilty oftentimes uh, on a guilty plea offenses will be if they're facing 10 offenses they might have to plead guilty to one or two but at a trial they might be convicted of all 10. and you know if they're convicted of all 10 that's a problem because uh, it's going to change the sentence that they'll face so knowing all providing your client with as much information as you possibly can with respect to the consequences of their decision making throughout the process is important so that way when you get those instructions and you get them in writing, they know what they're passing up and they also know what they're accepting, if they accept an offer.
0: Have you ever had uh, the experience or ever seen this in court where uh, a sentencing matter might blow up midway and <laughs> uh, or uh, you finish a trial and uh, it's a jury trial and now uh, there's an issue as to you know what were the aggravating factors, what was found and how do you deal with it and what standard. Is applied uh, for for uh, the evidence on that type of hearing or a Gardner hearing.
1: Yeah, those cases sometimes it's um, yeah I've had cases like that. I had I had you know that that happens in cases. For instance, if there's like a robbery with a firearm case, sometimes the crown attorneys will not want to prove that it's a firearm as part of their as part of the trial because it's a lot more to prove to have a jury make a finding of. So in front of the jury, they just want to establish that there was a robbery. And then what they'll do is they'll wait for the sensing hearing and try to prove beyond a reasonable doubt for the sentencing judge that uh, the weapon that was used was a firearm as defined by the criminal code. And I've had some hotly contested uh, sensing hearings uh, regarding that type of issue where the aggravating factor is a it's a major difference in terms of the, the type of punishment your client's going to face. So... When that happens, you have to be mindful of that at the outset of the trial and you have to advise your client at the outset of the trial that, you know, even if you're convicted here, there's still this other step where they're going to have to prove that it was a firearm and you can litigate that down the road. Sometimes, you know, I've had other cases where everybody I think has had a, a plea blow up where a client doesn't want to admit the facts or a client, you know, when you review the facts with them in the back, you say, you know, or in your office, these are the facts they're going to want you to plead to. And then when they're in court, something triggers like, ah, your honor, I, I did this, but I didn't do that. But, what they're not admitting no longer doesn't amount to establishing the elements of the offense. You have to get a plea struck. You know we've had those; those are a little bit embarrassing because it makes you feel like you maybe as a lawyer weren't prepared. But I think everybody appreciates that sometimes it's a very stressful situation for the client, and sometimes the client has second thoughts, and you know they change their mind in, at the eleventh hour, and you have to regroup. And I, I, you know, I've had cases like that where where the client, you know, he turned down a, a plea to a theft and an assault at the guilty plea and said, no, I am not pleading to this. And he wanted to have a, a trial. And then we ended up going to a jury with a jury trial on a robbery charge. And that's his choice. I I, I don't mind that. I don't mind when my clients are making informed choices and are confident in the
0: decisions they make. I rather that than the, the teeter totter. It, it's an absolute scary system for anyone who's involved. It's uh, not uh, one of the the uh, lawyers or prosecutor uh, involved or the judge involved, and, and you know for individuals that are, are first time before the court, there is a tremendous amount of fear. So individualizing these people, uh, as you spoke of, is, is so important. Um, I've had as an example, and it used to be this way in in, in provincial court many years ago, where for efficiency. Um, you know, uh, your client would, and you're about to set a date and your client would stand up, no, I want to plead guilty now today. And you know that the person has told you they didn't do it. So you get off the record and then the judge says, no, no, I want you to stay here to help me with sentencing. And it's an ethical dilemma, but as long as you're only giving information about your client, you're fine. But these are difficult situations that can arise on the fly. And so, uh, uh, I, I really appreciate, uh, your sincerity in, uh, being uh, with us and humbly discussing how difficult it can be on sentencing.
1: Sentencing is a hard, it's, it's, look, after a trial, it's probably the hardest thing to do for a defense lawyer is to regroup, come back into court. You feel like, you know, you feel like you lost. That's the first thing you lost. And now you have to come back and, try to still fight and and gear yourself back up to advocate for your client to minimize the amount of damage that he or she will face and you can't help but feel now after a trial that you were maybe partially responsible For this, That you think, oh, maybe I could have done something different. Maybe I could have done this or asked this question or taken this approach and you start second guessing yourself. And between the time of the conviction to the time of the sentencing hearing, all those thoughts play in your mind and you have to be able to regroup, gather your bearings, go back into court and bring on that same intensity that you had uh, at the outset of the trial, even though you know you've lost the trial
0: for your client. And as advocates, it's it's our role to be unbiased and to ensure that we advance our client's position, but we're also human. And so uh, recognizing the difficulty, but the linear uh, 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 direction that we have to follow is important. What would you advise young lawyers uh, who are faced with their first sentencing hearing? What are some of the tips you want to leave them with? I because
1: of what happened to me early on in the story that I, I told earlier, if you have the opportunity, there's nothing wrong with writing out your sentencing submissions. Go through the criminal code. I try to identify each principle of sensing that's relevant to this case and write something for yourself, something that you wanna be able to articulate on your client's behalf. That's the first thing. And I, I, I'm a fan of doing written submissions, like formal written submissions. I do it all the time on almost every motion or every sensing that's something significant after a trial, et cetera, I'll write FACTA and provide them to the court. Crowns hate that because they don't wanna do any of that work, but we do and we do do that for our clients. So I, I encourage young lawyers to do that because it helps you articulate your thoughts and it presents, if, if you have something that you can pass up to a judge, then they can take that away with them review it. And at the very least they know what you have to say on that point. And you're probably going to say it better when it's written out and it's nicely articulated with the case law and support. And you can make reference to all of your letters or whatever supporting documents that you have. So once you do that once, and you've gone through in a comprehensive sensing submission, then the principles of sensing are always going to be at your fingertips. And you have some experience with that because you've taken the time. And I, I find that that's pretty much this a rule of thumb in any application or any legal if you if you draft a search warrant application, once you once you've done it, you kind of have a, a better understanding of search warrant law. You can't take sensing for granted. It's a very important part of the process. It's the consequences to your client. And so you take that same approach. You draft something put it together, know the case law, know the seminal cases and know the language that the court uses because it helps color your submissions and makes you a more persuasive advocate when you are in court basically uh, weaving into your submissions the language that the courts have used at sensing hearings. And it also makes your client feel like you've come prepared and that you're not just throwing in the towel for them here at the end. You're still fighting. You're still advocating. So that's my first step. And then, that's the the after that everything else that we've discussed. Confirming all your letters. Don't take anything for granted. Um, be prepared. Know your client. Uh, when you're in court, know your client. You sh- you should be able to answer every question that the judge gives you about your client. And, you know some judges ask you things that you would never thought of. And in those circumstances, you could say, your honor, I hadn't considered that if I could just have the court's indulgence. That's fine if you've answered all the other questions. But if you don't know your client's age, you don't know your client's address, you don't know if he's married, if he has children, if she's, if she's a, a working mom, if you don't know any of this stuff, the client's not going to give you any credibility.
0: Everybody has a story to tell and we're there to tell the story for our client. I want to thank Marco Oshara for joining us here in the garage, and it's plug time. Um, there are parts, uh, people that are part of our audience who are either lawyers or the public that may want to reach out to you. Uh, how, how can they get a hold of you?
1: Well, I mean, if they have sentencing issues, uh, they should call me right away, I guess. So, well, <laughs> I'm, anybody can, can just get in touch with me through my website. It's and all my contact information is there, and I'm happy to help uh, or speak uh, on, on any issues. Uh, young lawyers often call just for simple questions, simple advice. I'm always available to help and provide uh, whatever insight I can and hope to make the, con- contribute a little bit uh, to making the defense bar a, a more collegial place to work. And I find that it is uh, very collegial to begin with. And things like this, and what you're doing with the Garage series, is a super helpful resource to all of us uh, we all many of us plug into it and, and get this type of insight information I'm, I'm really honoured that you asked me to be here for this I'll
0: Cooper and Shara out yeah
1: <laughs> thank you
0: thank you for listening to today's podcast a shout out to our fantastic producers Xenia Sethna and Jason Cooper for more free legal education and to check out what we've been doing for the past 10 years, go to thelawgarage.com. That is thelawgarage.com.